We're ready to go? All right. Well, from the days of Ezra the scribe to the present time, Jewish people and following their pattern Christians from all the nations have gathered in congregations uh, called synagogues or uh, churches to read the scriptures and to explain the meaning to those who can hear it and understand. Foundational to that is the scroll of the Torah and the book of the Gospels, which we just brought out. Uh, When we bring these out, it's important to know that the Torah represents for us the entire Tanakh, the uh, Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And the Gospels represent the entire apostolic scriptures, the Gospels and the epistles. The epistles fit in two categories, and generally people call them the Pauline epistles and the Catholic epistles, meaning the universal epistles. It's kind of interesting that that is uh, somewhat of a uh, bow towards replacement theology. I really think that the epistles can be divided into those epistles that were primarily written to Jewish audiences, that may include some Gentiles, so that would be the book of James and the book of Hebrews. And then there are, congreg- there are letters that are written primarily to Gentile congregations that contain some Jews. And that would be things like Corinthians and Thessalonians. These letters that were mixed were mostly written by Paul. Paul sees himself, and the scriptures call him, the apostle to the Gentiles. So of Paul's letters, none of them have had the impact that the epistle of Romans has had. And so today I want to begin a series on Romans, and I'm going to try to not turn it into a 30-week series. be very easy to do that, uh, but I'm going to try to shorten that. Uh, In the series, uh, we have to undo some ideas that are commonly associated with Paul and his understanding of the law or the Torah. Uh, And we have to warn against inherent replacement theology mindsets that have been part of Christian theology historically. And so we're going to put an attempt to understand this book in a first century context. At that time, there were two forms forming of this faith in Yeshua. There was the Jewish form that was uh, dominating around Jerusalem and the temple. They were temple participants. They were fully connected to the other sects of Judaism. Many of them had come out of that. Some of them were priests. And so the Jewish form of the faith was very temple-centric and Torah-centric and Jewish identity-centric. And they understood that there were God-fearers among them who were Gentiles, but that was one form. The other form developed in diaspora, particularly around Antioch, and that one had many, many God-fearers and proselytes to Judaism and Gentiles who were just rank-and-file Gentiles. And they were less connected to the temple, though aware of it, 
and less connected to the sacrificial system and more connected to a diaspora form of Judaism that had formed in the initial disbursement in Babylon and would, would later become normative for Jews and Christians uh, after the destruction of the temple. So you want to keep that in mind when we're talking about how Paul is addressing these things. Now, for those of you who are members of the Disciple Center, this is not new, and you're familiar with this, and this will be easy. But for people who don't have that, who still have the default of replacement thinking in their mind, who think that the gospel is a replacement of the Torah, who think that the church is a replacement of Israel, uh, they, they see that. I'm always amazed at that when I hear... Christians say, well, we're no longer under the law. Because I always want to say to them, when were you under the law? Right? They don't even know what that phrase means. But what there's, it's a deep default into replacement theology. So a lot of Christians read Romans as if Paul is writing to uh, Baptists and Lutherans and Catholics and Orthodox Christians uh, against what we would consider contemporary Jews. And that is not what he's doing. So I want us to keep that in mind. None of those faiths existed at the time that Paul wrote this letter. There were Jewish believers uh, oriented to the temple. And there were diaspora believers. And uh, generally the non-Yeshua Jews thought that the Messianic type Jews, what we would call Messianic Jews, the Yeshua Jews were kind of nuts. And the general rank and file Gentile, the Greco-Roman Gentile, thought that their fellow so-called Greek speakers were nuts following the God of Israel and the Israel of God and some guy who was supposedly resurrected. And so the mainstream of both Judaism and uh, paganism saw these things as a Jewish thing. And that was the perception for a very long time. So we're going to begin this week looking at the letter of Paul uh, to the Romans um, because he was desperate to visit them and to minister to them. And I hope you will read through Romans several times as we go through this and interact with the series in your homes uh, and among yourselves. And when you do that, I want you to consider Paul's Jewish-Gentile distinctions that he makes in this letter. I want you to look at his connection of the law and the flesh and the law and the spirit and works versus grace because sometimes those get blurred and he's making specific distinctions. And I want you particularly to be aware of his distinction between the righteousness that comes from the law in obedience and the righteousness of God that comes by faith. He is not putting one as good and one as bad. He's putting one as about salvation and the other one about reward. And that's very important that we see that distinction. So, if you'll turn to Romans, we'll take a look. We're going to look at the first 16 verses, just kind of get this thing started. Uh, and then uh, we'll go further um, in, in, the, um, in the series. Uh, so, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus 
called as an apostle, set apart for the good news of God. Now, Paul identifies himself as Paul here. This has led a lot of people in Christian history to see Paul as a convert from Judaism to Christianity, who changed his name from Saul, which was his Hebrew name, to Paul, which was his Christian name. That is not what's going on here. In the world that Paul lived in, there were three primary languages among the Jews. Latin, Greek, and Hebrew or an Aramaic derivative. The idea was, and you remember on Jesus' cross, uh, his title was placed in those three languages. Greek was the common language. You didn't mean you were Greek, it meant you spoke Greek. So when Paul talks about the Greeks, he's talking about Greek speakers. They could be from anywhere in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Latin was the language normally spoken more in the western part of the empire and for official items. So, Paul is using his Greek name because he's writing in Greek. In other words, the Greek form of his name. If I were interacting with Israelis and my Hebrew was conversational, it is not. It is dysfunctional. But if it were, and I was talking to them and they were talking to me in Hebrew, they might refer to me as Baruch instead of as Bruce. Because that's the Hebrew form of my name. That's what's going on here. So he is simply using it. In the same way that he's going to use the Greek form of Jesus' name, Jesus, rather than Yeshua. Not because they're changing the name of Jesus, but because when you use a language, you tend to use the words and the accents in the language that you're using. That's what's going on. I want you to keep that in mind, because not understanding those things causes a lot of Romans to be misunderstood. So he identifies himself as Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle sent, set apart. That is, he's been ordained, if you will, to do a certain thing, and that is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He's going to be more explicit in that in a few verses. And he talks about the gospel. We use the word gospel. It's really the good news. This is really important because that phrase is not new. We have a tendency to think that the word gospel was invented by the gospel writers. And it's not invented by the gospel writers. It's a phrase used by Isaiah. And Isaiah is going to be used by all the gospel writers to refer to Isaiah's writings in reference to John as the forerunner of the Messiah. And they will use that. I often call Isaiah the gospel because much of the gospel in the Old Testament is found in the book of Isaiah. So, uh, that's what he's doing. He's a servant of this Jesus Christos. He doesn't use the word Messiah. He uses the word Christ, which has a little more of the kingship aspect rather than the priesthood aspect. That makes sense when he's writing to a more Gentile-oriented congregation. He's not going to go into uh, a lot of that. He will go into the Torah, and he will go into the Psalms, and he will go into Deuteronomy. 
uh, as he goes through there because this congregation has some background and knowledge and it is a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. So, verses 2 through 4. This gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh and who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here Paul makes it very clear that the foundation of this good news is the Tanakh. This good news is not some new thing to replace the old thing. It was predicted and foretold in the Tanakh that it was coming this direction. First, that the Messiah would be a son of David as to his kingship and to his lineage. And that he would be the son of God declared to be that in the context of the resurrection. Because he would conquer sin and death in that context. Paul will wait till the 15th chapter to go into the details of a lot of that because he's going to weave a uh, story in the first 11 chapters that gives a theology of God being the God of the Jews and of the Gentiles. And then how shall we live from 12 on? Okay, I don't think I need to do anything else there. Except I do want to say to you that we're going to see all through this book that Paul is quoting or paraphrasing large sections of Scripture. Uh, In other words, he is in effect pulling together what the prophets had said so that we would understand that. When we get to verse 5, we get these, these words. Through whom we, notice the we, uh, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Paul says is. We were given grace. And we were given uh, apostleship. Who's he talking about? He's talking about him and Timothy. You will see at the end of the book. He refers to Timothy being with him. And others are with him as well. These are the, the, uh, the people who brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says we have been specifically given this task. To bring about the obedience of faith. Faith involves obedience. You know I always. There's an implication to faith. If you believe something. If I tell you I'm going to meet you. At three o'clock at a certain place. If you believe me, if you trust me, if you are a doer of what I said, you're going to be at that place at 3 o'clock. Okay? So when God speaks, it's not, that, oh yeah, I believe it. No, we act on it. Faith becomes obedient. Okay? And he says that this is among the Gentiles for his namesake. Remember that the apostle said, apparently God is calling out a people from among the Gentiles for his name. We are those people. And then he says, my favorite phrase here, who's he writing to? 
to all who are beloved of God in Rome. All you who God loves in Rome, I'm writing to you. You are called to be holy ones. This is important. That gospel is not a remedy for the world. It's an exit strategy from the world. The gospel isn't going to improve the world. That's been a false understanding of Christian missions for a long time. That the gospel will come in and clean up the the world. What happens is the gospel goes in. The church gets there. Then the church assimilates into that culture. And the corruption of the culture ends up in the church. We are called to be separate. That's why when Paul gets done explaining all of this, the very first words out of his mouth in chapter 12 are going to be, Therefore, brethren, I beg you by the mercy of God that you present your body a living sacrifice and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The gospel pulls us out of the world to live a different way because we are called as holy ones, saints. Now, I don't get that. Because I know my own life. What gives me a little comfort is Samson. Probably the most unholy, holy guy in the Bible. And, you know, but there's a lot of pain he goes through because of his, his arrogance. And I get that a little bit too. So, Paul uh, tells us now who he's writing to. And as heirs of the Greco-Roman heritage... Uh, this letter should also have some uh, bearing on on our our faith as well. Then we get to verse 8 through 12. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, and perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. And I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This passage, I've never heard a lot of messages on it, but boy, there's an enormous amount right in here. First of all, Paul's telling why he's writing. He wants to come and see them and visit them. He wants to minister to them. He wants to include them in his ministry to the Gentiles. But he does something that he does in a lot of, uh, of his letters. He talks about his praying for them. And I was struck by the fact that Paul prays for those he's ministering to. And for those he's heard have come to faith. Even though he hasn't met them. He doesn't know them. I think we don't pray for each other and for our fellow believers enough. Paul seemed to believe it was critical to be thankful for the people who were becoming believers and to pray that they would be strengthened in the faith. I think we need to pray for each other. Uh, it sometimes feels trite to say, Lord, for all who believe in you. and are, But uh, 
I think we should do it. If nothing else, to remind us that we belong to a vast group of believers who one day will be together. Then he says, this is not an individual faith. This is a communal faith. Paul says, what I'm really wanting is to get to know you. So that your faith and my faith will strengthen each other. Because that's what we need. We are the body. We belong to one another. We're members of one another. The more you know other believers, the more you interact with other believers. Not just within your family. Not just within your congregation. But across the denominations, the more you have a sense of the people of God and belonging. And it encourages and strengthens your faith. Now, some of these people are going to be hard to get to know, and some of them are going to be awkward. I've had people telling me I needed to see this movie, Father Stewart, or Father Stu. It is not an easy movie to watch for someone with my background, and also because the language is, is awful. But the message is clear. God gets a hold of some people, and when he gets a hold of them, they affect other people's faith. And there is something about this faith, once for all delivered to the saints, that is a communal faith. And we need to see it as that, and not as our own personal, individual possession. Certainly we have our own faith. But our faith is a communal faith, and a relational faith. And Paul's going to make that clear, not only at the individual, small level, but at the larger Jew and Gentile level in that context. In verse 13 he says, Now I want you to know, to be a, uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you as well, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, I want you to understand that Paul here makes it clear that the gospel is not the four spiritual laws. These people are already believers. He's not going to come to them and say, Do you know God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Do you know that you're a sinner and separated from God? And Jesus died. He's not going to do that. They know that. But he wants them to know the whole counsel of God. He wants them to understand that. He will say that in the book of Acts. I didn't, I didn't hold back from giving you all the understanding of what God is doing. And I'll tell you, I think sometimes we get tunnel vision. And we get myopic because we don't see the bigger plan of God. And so Paul's saying, I want to be connected to you too. I want some fruit among you. There's no place where the gospel goes to Gentiles I don't want to be a part of. And certainly through his letters, he reached a lot more people beyond his life than he, than he did in his life. One of the things he says here, and I, I find the anthropologist in me likes this. He says that... Uh, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now again, this is a language issue. The Greco-Roman world, the dominant language was Greek. So he's talking about Greco-Romans. 
And they were all kinds of nationalities in the Greco-Roman world because the Greco-Roman world went from parts of England all the way down to Egypt. So all of those groups are part of Greco-Roman and they were part of the civilization of the Hellenists, right? They were Hellenized. They were uh, Alexander the Greatized, right? They, they, there was this idea that we need to all be sophisticated and lovers of philosophy and all of this, right? And then there were those people beyond that, these, these people who sounded funny. You hear the bar, 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 they, what are they saying? Barbarians, that's where the word barbarian comes from. So what he's talking about is those who, who are wise and sophisticated and those who are fools who are bar, you know, just babbling on. But what Paul understands is that from Babel, where that word Babel comes from, God separated all the nations, but he didn't abandon them. Because he would create Israel to be a light to those nations, and through Israel, he would bring the Messiah, who would also be the Savior of the world. And so the good news is to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Remember, Greek here means Greek-speaking, that general population, not to Greeks proper in that sense. So we're going to get to the verse that I'm going to end with today and I'm going to start with next time. So Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul's fully committed to the good news. The word gospel, good news there, is from the book of Isaiah, as I said. So I want you to see that again. We've talked about this before, but I want you to keep this in mind. So in Isaiah chapter 52. Now remember, Isaiah 52 is right before Isaiah 53. And you know Isaiah 53 because that's the passage that talks about the suffering servant. The gospel is related to Jesus. So in chapter 52 of Isaiah, in verse uh, 7, he says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's where the gospel idea comes from. Who announces peace, peace with God, and peace among men. Who brings good news of happiness. This word happiness is actually the Hebrew word tov for goodness. Goodness and happiness go together in a biblical concept. Not evil and happiness. Goodness and happiness. And then he says, who announces salvation. I love this. The word there, salvation, is Yeshua. That's his name. You shall call him Yeshua, Savior, salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then, there's an added part of this, and this we leave out of the gospel to Israel, and I think we need to include it. Say to Zion, your God reigns. We love to sing our God reigns, and he is our God, but he's their God. If you come to Jesus, you come to the God of Israel and the Israel of God. It's not a to whom it may concern 
kind of God up there. I think I told you once I got in trouble praying at the, uh, at the city council. They asked me to pray, and I came in, and I prayed, and I ended my prayer. I said something about, we pray to you, God of Israel, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And I stepped out, and a reporter grabbed me. <laughs> and he's, I mean, literally grabbed me. They could do that in those days. And he said, didn't they tell you not to do that? I said, not to do what? Did not say anybody's name. Just God. And I said, he's the only one I know up there. Right? I, I don't pray to whom it may concern. That's the God I prayed to. They asked me to pray. right? If they asked a Buddhist to come in, it would be a different thing. But they asked me. So the guy wrote an article was in the paper about how I was a bigot. Because I was narrow-minded, thinking that the only God was the God of Israel, and Jesus was his son. That's what we believe, right? He may not believe that, but we do. I just It was really odd that I've got to accommodate everybody else, right? And they won't accommodate me. I'm happy to accommodate what they believe, but I'm not going to not say what I believe. Just crazy stuff. So... This gospel is the announcement of peace and of goodness and of salvation and telling Zion your God reigns. All of that happens because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And for Paul, this knowledge, this good news, is the power of God for salvation. And now he will use a phrase that he will use several times in the book. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He is not talking about uh, sequence. First this will go to the Jews, and then it will go to everyone else. That's true, but he's talking about priority. He's talking about this gospel has its first and foremost focus, Israel. Because when Israel receives the full uh, fullness of the gospel, Paul will say, we will see life from the dead. The culmination of all that God's doing will not be without Israel. He will take three chapters to address that. It's the three chapters that most commentaries, Christian commentaries, kind of slide their words and you don't know exactly what they believe. It's partly because they don't know exactly what they believe. And I'll tell you, there are parts I don't get either. Right? Uh, that's why Peter says, there are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. Uh, that those who are unlearned and ignorant, two out of three, <laughs> right, uh, rest as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. We want to make sure we don't do that. What we want to do is make the word be what it is. So, uh, keep in mind that uh, those two forms of faith, and we'll talk more about this uh, next week. So, the verse that we end with today is the starting place for next week, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, the Greek speaker. And I'm going to hope and clarify uh, this uh, next week as we, we use that. I'm going to try to get through a chapter and a half next week. 
I don't know if I can do it, but it, it all fits together. So you might want to read up to chapter 3, where he starts talking about the Jewish advantage. I want to get, I want to get this. He's going to take us back through the Torah and give us a whirlwind. I'm going to try to see if I can speed up as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.